Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic cult and current films and the people that made them and many other aspects of pop culture. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and our signature theme was composed by Greg Lerhoff. Here it's always Saturday night, and our mission is to chronicle film and pop cultural history one memory at a time. Tonight, we have a real treat in store as we invite author and film historian Frank Thompson on the show to discuss, among other things, the movies made about the 1836 Siege of the Alamo, based on his terrific book, Alamo Movies. Frank has written 45 books, including The Complete Bo Jest, Nothing Sacred, The Cinema of William Wellman. He's hosted commentary tracks on many films, including the 39 Bo Jess with Gary Cooper and Brian Donlevy. He's made documentaries. He is a salt of the earth film historian who obviously loves history. Welcome, Frank. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, it's my pleasure. So tell me, what part of the country did you grow up in? I, well, I've lived everywhere, uh, as Patty Duke would say, from Zanzibar to Barclay Square. But I was born in South Carolina and escaped as quickly as I could. So age 17, I was gone from there and then just lived, went to college in Boston and lived in Chicago and Atlanta and Idaho and 22 years in Los Angeles or thereabouts. But, Burbank and North but, Hollywood and but it sounds like you first discovered movies going to the movies in South Carolina as a kid, I would think. Yep. Were you, a, were you a movie-going family? No, not at all. Uh, from the very first movie I ever saw, which was a re-release of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, when I was six years old, my parents would just drop me off at the theater and then come back in a couple of hours and pick me up. And uh, it then got to the point where I almost always just wanted to sit through the movie again. And so they would budget for how long it would take for me to watch it twice. And then they'd come back and get me. So um, so I was uh, a movie lover from the get-go. And um, Actually, those first few years from six to maybe 11 or 12 were really important and mostly because of Disney stuff. But uh, they really taught me what a movie was all about, you know, because it was Darby O'Gill and the Little People and Kidnapped and Toby Tyler and uh, all the Shaggy Dog, Swiss all those great movies that just came one right after the other. Swiss Family Robinson. Yeah. Oh, that was a big one for me. Oh, yeah. And um, and Toby Tyler and Shaggy Dog were directed by Charlie Barton, who I got to know very well. And who, of course, because everything works into everything else, he's in Beaujet. So uh, it's wheels within wheels in my life. Now, my theater in my neighborhood in West L.A. had double features on Saturday mornings for the kids. It was the same deal with you guys? Sometimes. Uh, in fact... Uh, we were talking before we started recording about Battleground, the William Wellman film from 1949. And that was the first Wellman film that I actually saw in a theater because it was shown on a double bill re-release with Go For Broke um, about the Japanese American soldiers uh, who fought on America's side in the Second World War. And um, so um, I remember it being a big deal I don't know what you were like as a kid, but when I was a kid, we would see movies and then come home and play them. You know, we would, <laughs> we would all. Uh, and so I remember, uh, you know, after seeing Battleground, marching around going, you had to get home when you left. You're right. <laughs> Your baby was there when you left. Yep. You're right. Um... <laughs> and Jody was there when you left. <laughs> I would come home and I would had created a scene of uh, some Ravel World War II tanks and trucks and armored cars crossing sure. crossing a bridge from my Civil War playset, and I remember going into my mother's bathroom and taking the talcum powder and pouring it on all the models and and trying to create a snow scene from Battleground. <laughs> Something I would do. No, absolutely, and. Uh, 
those play sets, those Marx play sets were just incredible. And of course, one of the great Marx play sets was the Alamo. And they actually did five different versions that I know of, maybe six. And I have them all. And you still have them. Yeah. Well, um, I didn't I didn't have them when I was a kid. I had one, the one that we always called the John Wayne set, although it has no connection, but it was released concurrently with the Wayne film. And um, it was the first non-Disney version of the playset. And I got that one for my 12th birthday, I believe. But all the others I got as an adult. I would take my Civil War playset and I would take the Union and Confederate troops and turn them into Mexicans. To, Me too. To, yeah. There you go. To uh, upgrade your attacking force. Sure. So when you went off to college, did you plan to study film at all? What was your plan? No, I was studied music. I was uh, I went to Berkeley College of Music in Boston. Oh. So it, I intended to be a jazz musician and composer. And um, life just took a left turn somehow. So, what what led you into writing about film? Uh, Wellman, really, Boges did, um, and that's a whole long story, which for an Alamo podcast is too long. But um, I became intrigued with film history as a result of seeing Boges on TV, and then just it just growed like topsy i just started looking uh at film history and found out there was a silent bojess and so i started reading about silent films and it just kept rippling you know like a a stone in the lake and uh so i think it was i was probably around mid-20s when i decided i'd never written a thing in my life uh outside of homework and um, just decided I was going to write a book about Wellman, which I did. And uh, my first book came out in 83. And so Nothing Sacred was from 2017. So a big gap. Sure. Now I was told yeah. my co-author that my first book was on Wellman and my last book was on Wellman, which means I'm going to die soon. So luckily I got another book out, the Bojess book. So maybe that won't hold. Just really, uh, I know we're going to focus on Alamo, but uh, when you were doing your first book on Bo Jest, was Wellman still with us? No, he died in 75. Okay. And I started writing a couple of years after that. Got so uh, never met him. Now I'm very good friends with his son and with uh, two of his daughters. And I've known all of them. And I knew his wife, Dottie. Um, very well and um so that's you know that's has been uh kind of surreal and really wonderful to to get to know them so well now i became obsessed with the alamo after seeing the john wayne movie on a road show at the carthay circle in la back in 60 Lucky. oh yeah were you um were you um wh where did your interest in the alamo begin that's impossible to say. I've tried to come up with a good lie about it, but I <laughs> never come up with anything interesting enough. Um, when I was six, speaking of Mark's playsets, my brother gave me what I always considered to be the best gift you could get, which was a bag of men, which was uh, the Mark's. In this case, it was Texas Frontier Fighters, and it was a bag with... Uh, the Texan and Mexican figures from the Alamo playset and a couple of cannon and a couple of horses, but it was just in a bag and um, with a nice header card. Um, and I knew what it was. It didn't say Alamo and there wasn't a picture of the Alamo on the header card, but I knew what it was somehow. And it could have been some backwash from the Davy Crockett series, which was, you know, before I was conscious of anything, I was alive, but um, certainly did not know. I don't have any memory of seeing it at all. So, uh, so I don't know where it started, but I, uh, I knew about it. 
and then it was the Wayne film more than anything. But um, you know the Davy Crockett series on uh, Wonderful World of Disney, or whatever it was called at the time, um, would rerun fairly. I mean, I saw it a couple of times when I was a kid, uh, as I, you know, like age ten or twelve around there, and had the comic book of with the Fess Parker, you know, Davy Crockett at the Alamo and all those things. So. Um, it all mixed up a little bit in my head, but it uh, it was years before it ever occurred to me that um, there were more movies about it. And then I started looking into those and it just, you know, just morphed one thing to the next. Well, read, reading your book, uh, it was interesting what you were talking about, how the 1955 Davy Crockett with Fess Parker popularized the legend and the whole mythos of the Alamo like nothing before it. I think everybody, I think particularly for young people, I don't think young people were aware of the Alamo as much until the Fess Parker series. If you were a Texas school kid who got Texas history, I believe Texans don't kill me, but I believe that it's fifth and eighth grade where it was, uh, when they would study Texas history. And so I th I really think before 55, if you weren't one of those, there was no reason for you much to know about the Alamo. Uh, it wasn't a big historical subject. Uh, I would say still isn't particularly. I mean, it, it doesn't have much international ramifications. But um, yeah, I think, I mean, the, the Crockett craze was huge. It was it was more than most people can even fathom these days. It was Beatlemania huge, and um, thousands of items of Davy Crockett, you know, tie-in items, clothing, and uh, everything you could think of. I have a friend. Um, since I haven't asked his permission, I won't name him, but he's got a gargantuan collection of Crockett stuff among other things but uh several years ago they did a davy crockett exhibit at the bullock museum in austin and among the treasures there were a, a kid's bedroom in which literally everything in it was crockett related wow <clears throat> everything from the curtains to the sheets to the clothes to the shoes literally everything and that wasn't even all i mean he <laughs> as impressive as that was that wasn't even nearly all the tie-in stuff so it was amazingly big and um so when i when i got to meet fest i went to uh where his house in los olivos in california and he showed me um, he had the sheet music to the Ballad of Davy Crockett that he had recorded. And he said, look at the name on the top. And it said, Fez, F-E-Z. He said, they didn't even know who I was. I mean, it was just, I was just some guy, you know. So uh, uh, it was really something after after all those years to... It was, interesting. it was interesting what you said about if you're, a, if you're a Texas school kid, you'd learn about the Alamo. Just like in California... All we seemed to ever learn about was the missions. Every every time they were teaching California yeah. history, they were learning about those darn missions. Of course, yeah. these days we're learning a little bit more about those missions. They weren't exactly the uh, the uh, Shangri Laws that they're no. <laughs> in history books. Um, yeah. it, it's funny, interesting about the phenomena surrounding the Fess Parker, uh, you know, the movie because when Marty McFly goes back to 1955 and back to the future, the first thing he hears on the music coming from that little record store yep. is the ballad of Davy Crockett. I, I just love that. Um, the, the Ala, interesting reading in your book, the, the progression of Alla movies, they start, they start out fairly crude because this is silent times. There's not a lot of money for movies. The budgets become increasing over a period of time. But I was interested 
to learn about particularly your attention to, to detail on how difficult over the years it's been to portray the battle authentically that there just been there, every, every historical film of course takes poetic license but with um with the alamo it seems to have been just uh it was impossible <laughs> to get nothing get, but license yeah nothing but license exactly yeah. why do you think that is i think people they hadn't studied it for one thing why would they i mean Hollywood filmmakers or whoever they were making it, um, they all basically pictured it like a Western with a with a big battle scene at the end. So um, in 2003, uh, when Ron Howard was gonna direct the most recent one still, um, he called together and I always get the number wrong. I think there were eight of us, eight uh, historical people or eight Alamo experts in various fields. And I was the movie guy. And um, so one, uh, you know, Ron Howard asked me, what's wrong with the Alamo movies? And I said, well, they always get the time wrong and the place wrong because it's 1836. And so they have people wearing cowboy hats and stuff. And it's, uh, I said, and a good friend of mine, another historian is still mad at me for saying this. Uh, I said, it's 1836. I said, if, if you want to make it look much more authentic than anybody ever did, pretend you're dressing a Christmas carol and not the Alamo. And if you got the guys in top hats and tailed coats and all that, you're much closer to the mark. Um, and so it was really something. And I said, also a big thing, no beards. Nobody at that time wore beards. Uh, no, no Anglo people did. And so uh, I said, long sideburns? Yeah. Beards, mustaches? No, absolutely not. And um so it was really something the first time I went to that set in Dripping Springs, Texas, which is near Austin. Um, not too near, but it's in the vicinity. Uh, and to walk onto the set and just see all these top hats around. It was really great. It was, uh, and I thought, well, this is, it's, I'm not saying the movie is 100% is accurate, but I'm saying they tried much harder than anybody else ever did. I think we I think we lost something when we did not get Ron Howard directing it. I think something happened in the mix. Maybe. We got Hancock. I, I'm not a fan of that movie, uh, but I certainly appreciate the attention to detail. And I like the fact that they make the final battle a, a night battle, which was closer to accuracy. Um, sure. I think you made it was also yeah. I uh, I've had many lucky Alamo things happen to me, and one of them was that uh, John Hancock showed me and Alan Huffines, who was one of the two actual on-set historical advisors. He was really the military advisor, but um, Alan came out to California, and he and I went over to the Disney studio. And we saw the whole uncut film. And um, then when I saw it at the world premiere in San Antonio, uh, a lot was gone. I, I don't, it's been so long. I mean, this is 20 years ago now. So I don't remember exactly how much they cut, but I believe they must have cut a half hour out of it or maybe more. So, um, I mostly think that the the effectiveness of it is really due to the fact that there are a lot of hanging chads, you know, they're missing links um, from all the stuff that was cut out. Because when I saw it in its entirety, I felt it was lacking nothing. I really didn't. It was just great. I, I so, just had I had one technical problem with the movie and, you know, perhaps this, I don't know whether it was my TV set when I watched it, but I found that the sound effects 
seemed to be off that there there was a certain low octane to the sound effects and that's i need to see the movie again to get a better yeah, that had to be your dvd or whatever you were watching i didn't know i would think so as a i thought it had a real kick to it the uh, all the artillery and stuff sure it was, uh, sure it was real nice and it was all you know properly done uh stuff so you know i i when it comes to defending the Alamo, I'll defend that one. So. Sure, sure. Who is your favorite Davy Crockett? Well, you know, none of them. I mean, only Billy Bob tried to hit that real Crockett dichotomy, if you will. Um, as a matter of fact, I, I love the ending of it. Um, or his death scene, because it really was him deciding which Davy to be, you know, it was like that moment he said, okay, I can, I can uh, surrender or, you know, try to get out of this, or I can just be Davy. And, you know, and so, and he, you know, so he did. Um, so I, I've always thought he's got the most to it. But obviously, I have a great deal of affection for Fess Parker and John Wayne. I love John Wayne as an actor, and um, um, oh, got a got a funny Alamo John Wayne story. Uh, a friend of mine was the curator at the Alamo, no longer there, but the every year, all the Texas teachers who taught Texas history would come to the Alamo for a day of touring and and then he would speak to them and all that stuff and uh he said he would end up his talk with so as you can see the real thing was nothing like the john wayne film and he said one day when he said that one of the teachers said who's john wayne It's, I don't know that I want to live in a world where that such a question can be asked. <laughs> it's funny because I had the TV on yesterday in the background. They were playing that movie um, yesterday. The oh, one yeah. where the, the guy suddenly realized he's I the only one on the planet who knows the Beatles music. And then I guess, a world without John Wayne would just be not uh, not an interesting <laughs> I, I, I am such a John Wayne fan. I had Blood Alley on the other day. I hadn't seen it in a few years. And I remember reading that that movie originally starred Robert Mitchum as uh, Captain Wilder, but apparently... I'm sorry? You can read all about it in my Wellman books. There you go. There you go. Of course. Of course. And uh, was it true that... Uh, that uh, Mitchum was a little bit in his cups at that time? Uh, it could be true. Certainly, he was known to tie it on now and again. But uh, I've never found anything else to corroborate the main legend of that, that, you know, he threw a publicist into the bay and all that stuff. Um, what he told me was that... Um, they just, you know, they were tightening the budget and they were trying to get him to go lower on his price and he wouldn't go any lower on his price. So John Wayne, who was the producer, stepped in and um, same thing on the High and the Mighty. It was supposed to be Spencer Tracy. And uh, for some reason, Spencer Tracy opted not to do it. So John Wayne said, well, my picture, I better think <laughs> And in fact, it's the same thing with the Alamo, because he was directing it. He didn't want to be in it, but uh, his investors insisted on it. And so, which I completely he, understand. But I'm glad he took the role in the High and the Mighty. It's one of his best roles. Yeah, I'm glad he took Blood Alley. Although I'm a big Mitchum fan, and it sounds like you had a nice conversation with Mitchum. I've got I've got many good Mitchum stories. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, Many of them, if this is a family podcast, many of them not repeatable, but. Uh, <laughs> well, I yeah. technically, I, I think my rating is, is I think it's called clean. 
That's <laughs> well, good. Well, we'll keep it that way. But when we were doing the Wellman documentary, Wild Bill Hollywood Maverick, and God help me, 1995, um, we went to Mitchum's house to interview him there. And that was the day I had the most sustained conversation with him. Um, it was, uh, and because I had, because I mentioned Alfalfa Schweitzer, who was in, you know, plays a hundred year old Indian in Track of the Cat, also a Wellman film, as you know. And um, I just mentioned him while we were, while the cameras were being set up. And that brightened him up right away. He started telling me all these Alfalfa Schweitzer stories and um, that they used to go hunting together and everything. It was great. It's interesting how we have to brighten up actors of that period because they are not the most uh, avid interview subjects. Uh, I remember doing my documentary on The Great Escape and trying to get James Garner, who obviously oh. would be critical. And fortunately, I brought up the name John Sturgis and that got him to the table because he was a big fan of Sturgis. And Sturgis had just passed away. So he did oh. the interview kind of a tribute to John. Uh, I it's funny in talking about the Alamo, I'm also reminded that about the same time I had seen the Wayne Alamo, there was a series of books you might remember for young people called We Were There. Got it. And you had you had We Were There at sure. the Battle of the Alamo, which was that was another way of putting myself in the actual story because I was a young person. And I, I love those stories. Um now, one of the films, I, I read a little, I, I read what you said about the man from the Alamo, the Glenn Ford movie, uh, which I think is a pretty good movie. It's not really an Alamo movie. It's pretty much a post-Alamo movie. And I, I saw that recently and it, it was okay. But the movie that had a big impact on me about the same time, maybe a little bit later, because I saw the Wayne Alamo first, is the Frank Lloyd Last Command film, which... Yeah. Uh, I've probably seen 50 times and I have a fondness for that. A lot of it has to do with Max Steiner's music. Yeah. Uh, the Max Steiner score for The Last Command just is it's terrific. As is the Tiomkin score, obviously, sure. for the Alamo. Yeah, Steiner saved many a good many a movie. So. Oh, absolutely. Now, you mentioned in your book that um, Sterling Hayden was kind of criticized for giving a rather flat performance as Jim Bowie. I didn't see that. What do you, what do you, what do you, how do you feel about it? I think it's just his affectation. I think it's just the way he was. Um, uh, and, you know, he off, so often talked about the fact that he only did it uh, because he was in trouble because they thought he was a communist and he wanted to do something really American. So I don't think he had any real enthusiasm for it, um, which may or may not lead to some people. I think he's fine. You know, I, I, I like most of the performances in there. Jake Carroll Nash, of course, is a real favorite of mine. And um, so I think it's a pretty good movie. You know, in some ways, it it deals with the actual, not the events, because it certainly doesn't, but, but the actual political situation of the time. It's a little bit better on that than anything up to that point, and certainly better than the Wayne film, which has no context at all for this you know, the Mexicans are coming and they're going to threaten us. So we have to defend ourselves. Well, that's not a very good reason to, to no, decide I, to die. No, I, I, I agree. I mean, the, the last command has that key scene where uh, he he's um, riding his horse and he sees Steve Austin arriving from prison. Yeah. And Austin kind of lays out the table about what we can do as Texicans. And I thought that was nicely laid because it sounds like. Yeah. Bowie at that time, at least in the in the mythology of the Last Command, is kind of uh, wandering around trying to figure out what to do since he's just lost his wife and kids to a terrible plague. And uh, the thing about Sterling Hayden that I liked about the movie, 
he's a very physical actor and uh his fight scene with Ernest Borgnine his uh the whole way he's in the battle just seems to be uh he was a very physical Bowie a lot more than Richard Widmark was in in the John Wayne film although Richard Widmark could also be very physical uh but I keep harking back to those musical themes you know the 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 way that the ambush is laid against that Mexican cavalry Steiner does that brilliantly and then I, I guess I guess I also like the Ben Cooper character uh because Ben Cooper is a little bit like Frankie Avalon in the Alamo version yeah. just uh kind of brought a young person's perspective into that and of course that whole little romantic thing with uh Anna Maria Albergetti was you know thrown in there for for um uh you know for commercial reasons it was okay the the thing about the alamo i was going to ask you this because you you certainly are the guy to ask this in the last command anna maria albergetti is in the whole movie she goes to the alamo she's there when the battle begins and she's one of the few survivors along with the dickinsons yeah uh in the alamo you introduce linda crystal who is an absolutely gorgeous actress as flaca she seems to have a thing for John Wayne. Uh, is it a, can I assume that she got dumped uh, in the story because she was too much of a distraction? I have no idea. That's something um, I've read fairly early versions of the script. And as far as I recall, she leaves about the same time. <laughs> In all of them, I don't. I think that Flocka was leaving before Linda Crystal was ever cast. So um, I don't know. Um, have you ever seen uh, John Farkas's book on the making of the Alamo? I have. It's uh, called uh, "Not Thinking, Just Remembering," and it's it's incredibly detailed. Oh, and. Um, it's, you know, it's got to be 500 pages. It might be more than that, but it's, uh, he really did a deep dive and did an excellent job on it. Um, it's possible. It's been so long since I've read it. Um, I can't I should, recall. I should, get, should get him on my show. Obviously had no, uh, <laughs> you know, when I did read it, I wasn't thinking that much about this particular question. So it never stuck in my mind. Did you get to interview anybody who worked on the 60 Alamo for your book? I talked briefly to Linda Crystal. I talked to um, uh, Kent Curtis. Sure. Uh, of course, Happy Shahan, who became a good friend of mine, uh, who owned, you know, owned and had built Alamo Village. And uh, he, he's the reason it was such a, you know, he's the reason it was standing for so many years because he decided he wanted built practically, not like sets. Not like by by the way, what's the latest on Brackettville? Is it still there? Still there, but it's it's a wreck, and there's mm. I I can't imagine the any case in which somebody would come in. I mean what would they do? They'd have to tear down the whole thing just to rebuild it because what's there is not. Uh... The last time I was there, which has been six or seven years ago, I guess, it was just awful. So um, town still will, who knows? I mean, since nothing's been going on there, but I just watched uh, Once Upon a Time in China and America one of the five or six once upon a time in china kung fu kind of movies but this one's set in bracketville and so i was real curious just to see what it looked like this was i think 98 99 something like that and uh looked pretty good but what it's like now i don't know that's uh, been a long time it's a shame um there's so many Alamo things, such as the 70 millimeter print of the Alamo itself, um, that could have been saved if anybody had just saved it. And the set is the same thing. It, if there had been any effort, uh, 
I don't think happy he had, you know, as he was getting older and I just don't think he had the interest or the money to pour into it. Um, and investors keep hopping around, you know, but, or at least they did when I was on the set of the, of the Hancock film, um, had lunch with happy's widow. And they were telling me this guy was, you know, had made a big offer and he was going to renovate it and turn it into a studio again and build new sets. And, but that was 20 years ago. Sure. As far as I know, nothing ever happened with that. You know, the, the, the 60 Wayne, um, you know, for, for such a neophyte as a director, I mean, John Wayne had never directed before. This was his baby, but he brought such passion to the experience the sense of spectacle is just off the charts in that movie. And I don't think, uh, I think there are so many elements of the way the story, you know, I'm not talking about a lot of the goofy interaction with the characters, which <laughs> is a little too not much, you know, kind of Rover boys at the Alamo and not enough. You mean like the feather fight? <laughs> I, the, the look of revulsion on Lawrence Harvey's face after he does, he, he, he gets, he, Rain walks away from their rather serious discussion about the stakes <laughs> of the Alamo and gets into that feather fight. I could completely understand that. It's interesting because over the years we've heard about John Ford was there and Wayne didn't really want him around, but he gave him some second unit stuff to keep placate him. But in, in reality, I think that movie could have benefited from another director. Oh, sure. And Ford directed a lot more of that film than Wayne ever let on. Um, he directed scenes. He directed several scenes. Uh, directed the scene with Linda Crystal and Wayne when, uh, when Wayne is walking down the hallway and she is watching him go and the camera's pulling back. That's all Ford. And the death scene of the two it do boys, uh, uh, Ford directed that. And uh, other, there are several scenes that he directed. So he was there. And I don't really know, I'll have to check Farkas again. Um, I don't really know how much second unit stuff he actually did. Uh, that that always sounded to me like something that Wayne was saying because he felt like it was, uh, he was embarrassed or something. Uh, well, the other, you know, the other thing, the other thing that's interesting is that the perception that this was a, a a box office bomb, which is not true, of course. No, not at all. One of the top ten financial hits of the of that year, nineteen sixty, and always made money for years. One of the when it was sold to CBS TV in. God help me, 71 maybe. Um, it was one of the biggest prices they'd ever paid for a movie. It uh, And then there's never been a form of video, home video, that it wasn't released on, except there's never been a Blu-ray because I got nothing to make one from. At this well, point. now let's get into a little bit of that, though, because I think yeah. the listeners would probably want to know that this is one movie that has not been preserved. No. And it could have been, and it should have been, and uh, it's a crime. It's just a crime. Um, it was found in Canada. Um, an, a man named Bob Bryden, who I don't know, but uh, I, I know of him and know people who know him. He went to a 70 millimeter festival sometime in the 80s, I think, and saw the entire film and didn't mention it to anybody, I guess, for a while because he didn't know that there was any issue about it. And then when he finally did, um, several people, uh, people with money that I don't have, rented a theater in Toronto and flew up there to see it, and sure enough, as soon as the Tadeo credit came up, they knew that they were seeing the real thing. And 
so MGM UA got it. They were going to be making the laser disc for it. This is in the early nineties, and uh, the film has just been badly stored. They uh, they cut out the scenes that had been cut so they they could get it into the laser disc, and then. Um, Others can can tell you in much more detail about the horror of that, but it was there. There was, you know, after years of us convinced that it was lost, it showed up, and MGM UA ruined it. And um, I don't believe it can. I don't. I believe it's past hope. I don't think there's any way to to get it back to the way it is. And if it's uh, I know there's a lot of people who say, well, I have it on DVD, so it's not lost. Well, it's if it's not in 70 millimeter Todd AO, it's lost because that's because well, that's the film. Isn't isn't a film print also in danger of fading badly as well? This one was very faded, but even in the early 90s and especially now, there's the technology to bring back color into almost anything. It's remarkable things uh, have been done. And so, um, you know, it, but I think everything, I think it might just be too far gone. So it's, I wish I could be more optimistic about it, but it's a, it's a shame, a real shame. It is a shame. It's a, it's a piece of uh, history like no other. Um, well, we've got some time and I have to ask you about Bo Jest because the 39 Bo Jest is, is one of my all-time favorite movies. How did you wander into that neck of the woods? Um, when I was 12, I saw it on TV and actually I only saw the last half of it on TV, but, um, it's one of those things, you know, it's like when you ask a girl out and she she won't go out with you and the more she wants, the more you want her to. Um, Bojest, it was, I found it really intriguing. The next day I got out the book from the school library and it was a photo play edition. So it had stills from the Ronald Coleman film. So that sent me off on that tangent. And um it was 10 years before I was ever able to see the, see the 39 film again. Um, and had to drive from Boston to New York city to see it. And I borrowed a roommate's car, drove four hours to New York, walked into the theater, watched Bojest, got back in the car, four hours back. <laughs> That's what and, you uh, call passion. <laughs> yeah. And uh, as I said, it started everything. People, People very often say to me that I, you know, oh, you're obsessed with that film. And I'm not at all. Um, and I don't believe it's any better than it is. I don't just, you know, it's not one of the great films of all time. I like it a lot. And, but it, it, uh, it started a chain of activity. And so every time I'd learned something else about other versions, I would start doing photocopying and getting stills and all that stuff. And um, in 2009, I've, I learned the story of the San Diego State uh, college students in 1939 who found that the fort was still out there. So one of their grandmothers made uniforms and Arab robes, and they went out and lived in the fort and made a parody version of it <laughs> and uh i met three of them and interviewed them and made a documentary about it and um and so just stuff like that and you know then a friend of mine and i went out to the went looking for the where the set was and we found it and the set was bulldozed apparently many years ago but we found thousands of shells on the ground of uh the Bell rifle shells, thousands of them, and big chunks of the fort. That uh, so uh, it was where, an where, amazing where, experience. Where is this location? It's, it's in the Imperial Dunes, 
which is in California, but it's about, I'd say it's about 15 miles from Yuma, Arizona. And because that's really the closest town, people constantly say it was made in Yuma. It wasn't, it was made in California, but um, really who cares? But we found it and uh, and I've been there six or seven times and found different artifacts. And I took film historian Kevin Brownlow, who's probably the greatest silent film historian there is. Uh, he got his honorary Oscar in 2011 or 12, I can't remember. And we went to that. He invited me to go to the ceremony with him for that. And then the next day we drove down to drove down to the desert and uh, and you know I I always said if you haven't seen Kevin Brownlow in a dune buggy you haven't lived. <laughs> well, it's interesting. So, uh, it's interesting. So things just keep happening, and then uh, and I had I have a whole lot of stuff on all these films and comic books and cartoons and just it goes on and on and on radio shows and so when covid lockdown came i thought well i can't leave the house and uh blessedly uh got a a pitiful unemployment check but it was the same time when they were offering this like 600 a week you know uh whatever they called it check uh, to add to unemployment that went on for months. And I thought, I'm making better being not working than <laughs> was working. So I should just write this book. I'd always kind of thought about it. And uh, so I thought I'd be finished in a few months, but it actually took me three years plus because the, the book is gargantuan. And uh, now we're talking about uh, the complete podcast. Yeah. So it's uh Yes, twelve hundred images are printed in full color. Um, it it just you say so myself. It's a thing of beauty. It's really and beautiful. and when is this book going to be released or has it already? Last January. Oh, last January. Oh, fabulous! Yeah. Well, I am definitely going to go find it. Um, interesting. Amazon here. is the only place you can. Okay, it's like my books as well. Um, Parallels between the Alamo and Bojest. I mean, Alamo classic story remade several times. Same with Bojest. Uh, why do you think Bojest has been so popular over the years? I think the story, just you know, the the Foreign Legion is kind of a romantic outfit, and it's uh, it doesn't really have much connection to anybody you know in a in a personal sense, and. Um, so I think we can enjoy the battles and so forth without uh, personal angst, you know, and, um, you know, it's just a, it's a compelling story. Um, and it's been, it's been treated fairly well. Um, I like the 1966 version a lot, but it's almost without connection to Bojest at all. I always felt people would like it a lot more if it were if it were called something else, like, you know, Sahara Battle or you know anything. <laughs> but um, well, there's something. There's something. The original '39 version, which is my favorite, is is um, of course 1939 was a hell of a year for movies. I mean, my goodness. <laughs> but I think it really showed off William Wellman's abilities as a director and the just the whole staging of that movie and the casting my goodness um brian donlevy as uh markov what a performance he's terrific and um uh, as for much of the film i always say it's probably the worst cast film ever made and the best cast because nobody in it besides markov and and uh, Jake Harold Nash's Razanoff, um, nobody in it is appropriate to the to the characters they're playing. You know, it's just um, the three brothers. You know, even though Ray Milland is what Welsh, uh, they all come off as Americans, and they're except for 
Robert Preston, who's the right age at 21, all the other, you know, Cooper and Milan are 10 years or more too old. And, um, but how could you see it without them? They're great. You know, they're, so it's, it's just that Hollywood thing, you know, they're just, uh, it's, it's not the right cast, but it's the perfect cast. Yeah. Uh, Jake Carroll Nash is, uh, <laughs> how can you forget him up in that tower? And Markov says, now we shall laugh. <laughs> Give yeah. me some happy laughter. <laughs> Let him know we're merry and bright. He, um, you know, Jake Carroll Nash was cast as Markov. Really? And it was at the very last minute that uh, Brian Donlevy was set to be in um, a film with Alfred Hitchcock in England. And um, at the very last minute, I guess Paramount got, uh, got it in their minds. They really wanted to get him away from it. So they, um, they pulled him back and, you know, knocked J. Carroll Nash down a, apart <laughs> but he did a great job he's uh he's always great he's great at everything well yeah he's just one of those guys you know four four years later he's uh the italian prisoner in the humphrey bogart sahara and uh just, yeah. just marvelous you know, you know, i talked about this in well i did the commentary track for last command and i talked about it there um that he he had the kind of career that nobody can have anymore because he could do any ethnicity or and he did he played every nationality that you could think of and uh you know he's he plays chinese people he's black people in a couple of films he's arabs he's he's everything italians and uh, you know, we, we live in a world where, and I understand it. I don't, you know, I'm not uh, complaining about this. People should be able to play what they are, but it's, I still regret that that kind of versatility doesn't have any outlet anymore. And, um, as people like him, there's, they're gone, you know, so it's, it's, too bad. It's, it's funny because, um, we all have gaps in our, our film knowledge. There's movies we've never seen for one reason or another. Sure. So last weekend, I had some time. I put on Blake Edwards' Breakfast at Tiffany's, which I had really? never seen. <laughs> yeah. And I'm looking at Mickey Rooney playing the Japanese neighbor. And I think he set back at, at ethnic diversity about 20 years. Yeah not only playing it but playing the worst kind of horrible stereotype i don't you know people say well that was a long time yeah it wasn't that long ago that that was okay it was not okay in 63 or whenever that movie was made oh, yeah. um horrible and it ruins that film for anybody that wants to watch it now luckily i feel like you can pretty much take his stuff out and it's just it literally could be cut from the film and you wouldn't miss a thing uh yeah, it's interesting because yeah. i read blake edwards comments and he later said he regretted the whole process i guess they were in a little bit of a fog when they made the movie that he thought it was funny the fact that nobody else did i guess didn't matter uh <laughs> but it's just yeah you're right it, it kind of ruins the movie but character actors today the studios Back in the day, 30s, 40s, 50s, they were very shrewd in developing talent. Every studio had a number of character actors on under contract that that brought so much dimension and color to that. If you, I mean, sure. we, we still have wonderful actors and they're out there doing it. But I find today that actors who play supporting characters do not have the personalities and range that the classic characters have. I mean, we have a few. I mean, Christopher Lloyd, um, uh, the gentleman uh, who was in Fargo. I'm thinking of the character actor. He ends up in the in the CRISPR in the in the in the, in the, in the, the chipper. Uh, uh, 
Um, you know who I'm talking about. I uh, do. And I've blanked on his name. A little. Steve those, Buscemi. Steve Buscemi's, Christopher yeah. Lloyd's. Uh, they're, they're still there. Uh, but I think that back in the day, back in the days of the Alan Hales and the Basil mm -hmm. Rathbones and the Brian Donlevy's, we had such a kaleidoscope of character actors. That's why we're so I'm so drawn to films pre-1960 because we get that full range. And um, well, I think one of the major questions, uh, the, the major problems is you don't make enough movies these days to accommodate those kind of characters. Right. You could pick a movie from 1940 or pick 12 movies from 1940 and Franklin Pangborn will be in eight of them. You know, and he'll basically be playing the same guy because we think of, Carol, of, of people like J. Carol Nash as character actors but there's something else. Real character actors are the people who basically did the same kinds of things so they could show up, the audience would know exactly what, who and what they were, and they would, they would stick in their own lane, you know? And there's a million of those people. Right. And, um, but then the people who are just really versatile and could play anything there you know there are fewer of those now as as there were then you know it just that takes a lot of talent and and now there's not much outlet for a lot of that even on the stage you can't which which was always the holdout for uh playing you know uh bigger than life things so you could get away with with many things that you couldn't you know even in films in those days so um it's you know change is good and change is bad you know every every good thing that comes along we, has we, its points we've got a few more minutes left i want to give you an opportunity to tell us what you're working on right now uh well right now i'm back uh Back to the Star Film Ranch, which was a book I wrote in, I think it was published in 96. Uh, it was the first movie studio in Texas. And uh, when I was researching Alamo movies, uh, I was researching the film they made in 1911, The Immortal Alamo, which is a lost film, of course. But then I just got really entranced by the whole studio itself which is the first studio in Texas. And um, so uh, a UT Austin professor named uh, Kathy Fuller Seeley um, asked me, she was going to do a book on the subject, asked if I would collaborate with her. And then at the same time, there's a French documentary filmmaker who's become a good friend named Raphael Millet. And he's done a few films about Gaston Millet. Gaston Melies, excuse me. And um, so he wants to do one on the American Melies. So I find myself against all odds involved in another book and a documentary film on a subject I thought I'd given up almost 30 years ago. But um, so that's, I'm finishing up my part of that now. And then I think my next book is, I live in Asheville, North Carolina now and um so i think my next book is going to be on thunder road speaking of robert mitchum because it was made here um all of the location stuff was shot in this area oh, and so i became very interested in i love location stuff so I, i've been tracking all that stuff down and so i think that'll be the next one in your in your travels around the ut world did you ever bump into an historian named don graham I never did. Uh, I almost met him a couple of times, but never did. Um, yeah, he's passed away now, right? He's he in, has. And I, with Arthur Friedman, a good friend of mine, we have the rights to his Audie Murphy biography. Ah, it's a good book. 
good book and we've developed it uh we're developing it with david ward uh the oscar winner for the sting who also wrote uh major league and dean devlin is involved with the project as well when this 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 strike ends we hope to start pitching it to some streamers we want to eight-part miniseries on the life of Audie Murphy, uh, which I don't think, it, I, I mean, I don't, it's not a question. I don't think it's never, his story has never been told fully. No. And even the movie he made about himself is uh, not exactly filled with hard facts. <laughs> so. No, no, exactly. It was this kind of a standard World War II movie of the day. Yeah. Not a bad film, but more of a standard. Yeah. And uh, the, his story, you know, most people under 40 have never heard of Audie Murphy. Uh, and I think it's time to bring him back as a character. Well, Frank, this has been terrific, and I knew it would be. Uh, you I've are... enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for coming on board, everyone. You've been listening to Saturday Night at the Movies. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer's Ben Shrewsbury, and we've been listening to some wonderful stories from Frank Thompson. Uh, I'm hoping that you can come on again. We can uh, have a discussion. Absolutely. It would be wonderful. Thank you so much. We'll do it again tomorrow. <laughs> I'm ready.